0: What I class as basic coaching, yeah. But weirdly, that's actually what needs to be learned. I know that sounds really basic, but and then it's like, well, what are you doing? You know, you're working with an eight-year-old, but you're standing above them. Are you, do you not want to? And you're standing above them with your arms crossed, looking at them. Well, why do you? Why, why don't? Why don't you sit down below their eye line so they're looking down to you? Why don't you make sure you're in their eye line rather than standing behind them? You know, these, these are what I class as basic coaching. But also for me, I've always felt quite natural in my coaching approach. But these are things that I've obviously done naturally, but are actual coaching procedures that we should all be following. Yeah. But we all get stuck in this. Why are you sitting down? Type thing. And you almost get accused of why are you sitting down? You know, this, you should be up. Around. No, no, no. I'm sitting down for a reason. I'm not sitting down because I'm just sitting down and chilling. I'm sitting down because every move...
1: Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast. The podcast for athletes, coaches and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with a platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 48 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I was delighted to be joined by Gareth Shelburne. In today's podcast, myself and Gareth discussed the myths and realities of developing and paying intern coaches, Gareth's decision-making process for addressing compensations both within the youth and elite athlete populations, and how Gareth manages the multiple stakeholders within youth athlete coaching to ensure that his coaching is athlete-centered. Thank you very much for listening and I'll catch you again on the other side. Right, Gareth. We'll jump straight in. Um, why do you do
0: what you do? <laughs> um, I suppose the simple, short answer is it pays the mortgage. Not going to lie to you. Um, I know that might not sound exactly what everyone goes because everyone talks about passion, but uh, that's how it works. Um, uh, if you don't pay the mortgage, you, you you struggle a little bit. So, I suppose the long, more complex answer has a bit more depth. Let's be fair. Yeah. Um, you work for a long time in your life, I believe. Yeah. Um, So I believe that you either have, well, you have more options, but I see two, two ends to this spectrum. One is you either have a job that's nine to five, Monday to Friday, um, get weekends off, but get great holidays, get great benefits, great pay. And you get paid an absolute wedge for that, which is great because then you just enjoy life outside of work. Or, you work long hours, yeah, you enjoy what you do, and you don't ever have the Monday feeling because you get up and go, it's not work, because you actually enjoy what you do. And I think you've got to think if you can do either, it doesn't matter, because it depends on the individual. But for me, I realized very early in my career that if I wasn't doing the latter one, A, I'm not intelligent enough to earn a load of money, yeah? (laughs) <laughs> investment banking is not for me. I'd like the cash, but I don't think I'm good enough for that. Um, and secondly, I always want the interaction. You know, I'm definitely much better and, and about the delivery. I love delivering, absolutely love delivering. Um, but yeah, so that, I think that that's why I do it. Um, I suppose the big question always gets asked if you won the lottery, would you continue? Uh, I think I've been pretty honest with a few people and say probably not. Not right now, anyway, when I've got my kids where I just literally go, bang, I'm just going to spend time in. These last four to six weeks that I've been homeschooling have been the best four to six weeks that I've had in years. I've seen my kids every day. I've got involved with them. I haven't had to. I've still remoted a little bit. So I've still been doing what I do, but I've been great. So, yeah, very different. Yeah, I, I, it, Right now, if you said give it up, I would. Further down the line. When the kids have gone away, might be a bit different.
1: Yeah, yeah, priorities definitely shift at different points in your life. Uh, I think it's a Muhammad Ali quote, or maybe I'm just saying that, uh, but it's like if you view the world the same as 50 as you did at 30, then you've wasted 20 years of your life.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's something that a lot of snc struggle with. They feel that they should still be doing that. That, that volume of work that everyone believes they should do. They should be always at the beck and call of somebody. And I think as your life views change, what actually happens is that your job role changes and where you want to focus is. Now, um, they talked a lot about like a, having an equalizer, something we've been doing uh, with a few other coaches, which has been really cool, about your bandwidth changes over time. For certain things, so at certain times in your life, the family gets a little bit less, et etc, cetera, etc, cetera. but having some good, strong values means that you can play with those bandwidths, and at certain times of life there 'll be bigger times for family than smaller times for family, and the same would work and I think it 's re- a really interesting concept
1: yeah, funny enough, um, just thinking of uh, ironically an re lesson I covered this week and the task they got given. Was um, you've probably seen it. it's like a lifeboat activity. It's like 14 people on a lifeboat. You can save eight, the other guys, see you later, dead. Um, and the quote at the top was uh, Decisions are easy to make when you know your values. Um, and another thing I'm thinking of is uh, in a book called The One Thing, uh, where he says, you know, you might have one thing that's important in different aspects of your life family, business, personal, whatever. And he describes some of the, um, some of like you're juggling different balls. And he says some of these balls are, you know, rubber; they'll bounce back. Whereas, are other balls, if you know, if you neglect family for long enough, that's a glass ball; it breaks. You know, and you don't want to get yeah. to that stage.
0: I, I, I always remember, and it's just the silly one, and everyone knows it. It's the glass jar with the big rocks and the small rocks. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a classic. Like you fill it with the small rocks, and the big rocks don't get in. And if you're big rock to your family and stuff like that, your social media, your, your car, your, your friend, you're, you're going down the pub, those things don't, don't do it. What I also liked about that is that the guy put in the big rocks, then he put in all the small rocks and then he put in a glass of beer at the end and said, there's always room for a beer. And I was just like, <laughs> I quite like that. <laughs> That's
1: funny. I mean, in we'll, we'll get into it in a, um, a little while, but ironically, it just, that hearing you say that reminds me of our off-air chat and how many kids are sort of they're sort of sprinkling that sand of social media filling that bucket right up and you're like what have you got left for in terms of what you're passionate about what actually means something to you um and i'd argue not a lot in this current day and age absolutely absolutely um so if we move from your why, if you will, to your philosophy, either your personal philosophy or move for sport, your philosophy or move for sport. Um, so my question is, if you feel like you have a philosophy, what is it? And does that change when you're working with, say, um, a youth athlete versus a professional or an international athlete?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly I'd suggest that, as with everyone, philosophies change over time depending on who you're working with, what you're doing. But, I still believe that we want to produce certainly a move for sport, educated, resilient, capable athletes. There's no doubt about that. And I suppose capable, um, we are now starting to replace with performing athletes. And interestingly enough, the educated is our, our key there. No matter who it is, we want to make sure people know why they're doing stuff because as soon as someone knows why they're doing it, they get it, they'll then engage more. And so for me, it is about being making sure everyone knows why they're there has to be a justification obviously the level of what it is is different yeah you might have to explain to a high level athlete who really wants to know what you're doing and how it affects what they do but to a kid you just need to like maybe go well watch if i push you you fall over so they then all of a sudden learn about where that is. So they're not getting necessarily educated in a formal setting or even a verbal setting. They're physically learning to be literate. So that is a difference. Um, however, I think philosophy, I don't think this is necessarily a necessary philosophy, but more uh, an observation which occurs in both types of athletes, adults and juniors. I've always seen that happy athletes are performing athletes. Now, that may sound a bit weird because obviously there is a lot of tough times but if you are in a good place mentally socially with what you've got those tough times are actually easier to deal with so for me that doesn't mean there isn't a discipline that doesn't mean that there isn't some sort of feedback that they don't like but I've always believed that positive feedback way outweighs anything negative and uh, I, I suppose uh, they all talk about the uh, poo sandwich if I'm using nice language. Yeah. And I'm a big believer in the poo sandwich. Uh, you know, let's, let's, let, let's always give them some positive. Yeah. And, and the negative isn't ever negative. It's just, well, if we did this, we could probably make this better, which I think is the way to go. It's not about that's wrong. Cause the other thing as coaches, which is really interesting, I find is that we're always looking for what's wrong and we never start with what's right. So because of coaches and how we're trained, we're always looking for something that's wrong to change. So our initial thoughts are always negative. We don't go, that was a great squat. Game on. Love that. Or even, how did you feel? It was for most coaches and especially young coaches, and I get why this is tough, they're looking for technical errors. So the first thing they go is, oh, your heel's lifted or you've shifted rather than, oh, you held the bar level. Great. That's a great squat. And I think positivity, if you, if you want a philosophy, that's where it is. And that works in both juniors and adult populations. Absolutely. And I suppose the other one, which goes with positivity, is for God's sake, make it fun. And that doesn't necessarily mean your exercise needs to be fun, but at least encourage the right relationship and the giggle and the laugh, yeah? Because especially, and with kids, that's unbelievably important because that's what gets you, you know, I talked to some of my interns about, make sure you know what's happening in the real world yeah you know make sure you do know who is on insta what they're talking about make sure you do know because otherwise you're just going to be sit there and a bit like me be an old dinosaur but make but make sure you you know what's going on because that's how you're going to interact you gotta remember that if you're doing training programs correctly there's going to be some dead time let's not fill that with silence unless you want to fill it with silence because there's obviously times that you do but Make sure you know what's going on. You interact. Don't be the, the, the stickler that stands in the corner like a broomstick, just going, do this, do that, because that doesn't work. And it has to be fun. Um, and I think at the top end, that fun comes generally in variational theme. These guys are, and girls would have to do the same thing every day, day in, day out, because that's what's needed to maintain that chronic load of what they're delivering. And if it's the same thing, you lose engagement and you'll lose adaptation so you've got to make sure there's some variation and some fun at that point and i think yeah again that all relates back into if they're happy i guarantee you they're generally performing well
1: yeah and i mean in boxing circles they a happy fighter is a dangerous one and uh it's funny i was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about how the mindset has changed over the years um in the sense of in years gone by, it'd be like, right, I must deprive myself of everything in this training camp because then I'm going to unleash hell on my opponent, you know, as if he's punished me versus now it's like, right, well, the training's going to be hard at times, but Mm. if I'm just generally miserable for 12 weeks, you're just not going to be able to flick that switch and enjoy yourself in this sporting moment.
0: Mm. And I think that's, I see that as just not, um, my philosophy for people, but my philosophy in general. I believe that if we're generally being positive in life and making the right decisions as a human being, fate generally, and I say generally, <laughs> comes back and helps you. Yeah. If you are making the right decisions and you, you do, you're you being the right human being, I think things do help. And I, I don't think that sometimes if you sit there and wait for it to happen, it, it doesn't it definitely doesn't
1: yeah and um one of your um one of i believe i can't remember if it was an article or something i read on your social media um but with move for sport you were talking about personality versus uh research when it comes to hiring coaches for move for sport so do you want to chat a little bit about um i suppose what that process looks like for you
0: yeah i i, <laughs> uh, I may i may sound controversial right now but i may not it depends on whose ears this this gets to burn but uh all of this hoo-ha about yeah do you need a degree yeah do you need a qualification now i i'm not i, I don't ever want to Yeah, hey i went back after ooh, 10 years of doing stuff and did a master's why because i felt it would benefit myself and it did what it did it gave me some justification for what i was actually already doing which was brilliant yeah but it also gave me some new stuff, which I didn't know. And then I could apply that. But I definitely was coaching before knowledge. So I've de- I'm definitely a coach who likes research. I'm not a researcher who likes to coach, if that makes sense. Um, and I think that's quite a, a good way to distinguish where we go. And I think what I look at is I like to have people that have great attitude and can interact and not necessarily. So when I look at internships or when I look at people that I'm looking to employ, I'm actually looking at how much coaching they've done. Yes. It's nice to have your accreditation here. Yes. It's nice to have a degree because it means they've got some sort of really good, strong base of knowledge. Of course. Yeah. But actually I'm going, Oh, so you coach the under sevens football team with your dad. Oh, I'm keen on keen on having a conversation about that. Oh oh, you're helping out with the local scout group when they go climbing. And so, ah, oh, I'm interested to see how that works. Yeah, because a good coach is built around good relationship skills. And especially in the youth population, if all you've ever engaged with is either an adult population or a, let's say a university population, yeah, there's no way you're going to be able to relate to a youth population and how they deal with. And your ability to control that group is dictated to by your experience with that age group. No doubt about that. Yeah. And so for me, attitude is everything. If you're willing to come in, be uh, vibrant, bullish, and really get stuck in, yeah, and learn from your mistakes, which everyone will make, yeah, I'd rather see that than someone who's got 500 qualifications, doctorates, etc. Because the rest can be taught. It's really hard and, uh, you know we talk about Brett Bartholomew and stuff like that and art of coaching. I think it's really interesting. He calls it art of coaching, considering he then tries to apply science to the art of coaching. I think it's a great, great way, but I agree. I There is you, there is an art to it and there is some science, but I think you have to have both to be a great coach.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're, especially when you're working with little kids and all of a sudden, I mean, we spoke off air about, um, The programming tasks that you set, some of your guys. I think the way that I look at programs now has changed massively from being a PE teacher. Versus sometimes you see a program and people are judging how good it is without even hearing what the hell the aims are. Or oh, I like those exercises.
0: Yeah, and I think people get. I think people do get caught up in exercises, as in, is it a back squat? Is it a, is it a deadlift, etc. What should we do with the fundamental movements? (laughs) I think it depends. And I know that sounds the classic S&C, but it depends. Like, what are you going for? What what are you trying to achieve? Yeah? Are you trying to achieve a better back squat? Or are you trying to achieve a kid that will grow up with some sort of good physical literacy that can move around a room that will be able to do stuff physically for their entire life? That doesn't have to be sport. That could be just being able to be active for their entire life, whether they go walking, rambling, be able to climb up a set of stairs and not have to get a bungalow at the age of 75. You know what I mean? And it doesn't matter where it is. And I think that's we sort of lose that a bit when we start getting really set on programming. And at the elite level, I feel we still lose it because we forget sometimes that we have to make a performance outcome change. And if we get stuck in the gym on the numbers in the gym, we forget that actually all that really counts is what happens on the sporting field or court or pool or wherever. And I think that's a really important point that I've, I've always tried to guys like, what do I want to change here in their sporting world? And how do I do it now? Sometimes that's quite close to the sporting world. And then sometimes it's a bit further away, but there is always a chain and you talked about, um, uh, justification and people don't know why what the intent is i think you should never judge anything until you really know that you're standing in the same shoes as that person and you know all of the facts you know you can have an opinion but you can't judge until you know the full facts and the full intent definitely
1: yeah and it reminds me of some off-air chats i've been having with the previous podcast guests i would talk about um high level goalkeepers and people saying this error happened because I don't know, the foot was in the wrong place or the hands were too low. And ironically, he's actually knows these goalkeepers and they're like, Oh, I actually didn't see, or I didn't think there was going to be a flick on at the near post. So I'm looking at a completely different, you will and you when you watch it and you know, all of this information, like, Oh, it's so obvious why he's planted his feet to go the other way because he thinks the ball's going there um, rather than dialing into minutiae or I suppose, becoming, re- um, what's the word? So reductionists as a strength and conditioning coach and be like, oh, it's a physical error. Everything's a physical error. Or as a football coach or whatever, being like, oh, it's a movement error. Like there's so many things without speaking and to the athlete, you never find out.
0: Yeah, and that was really interesting that you you went with the reductionist approach uh, as in the that that's where, really, and I see it a lot. And I think data is starting to feed us more towards that as well. Um, when actually... When we look at it, it's like fine. So we can measure everything internally, externally. So we can measure that we're working hard. Yeah, you know whether that's with GPS, whether that's with uh, heart rate monitors, etc. Whether that's accelerometers, whether that's with things like catapults and stuff like this, which is great. However, the difference between when you compete and when you train, anxiety. We haven't even touched the sides of this. Yeah. How do we psychologically be able to develop? Because we know that the difference between workload and movement load, between they're the same. So what's the heart rate kicker? The heart rate kicker is definitely something about, are they anxious? How are they dealing with the pressure? This is different. And, you know, uh, a guy that I've uh, been speaking to recently, Cam, we, is doing some really good work at, um, at Loughborough, trying to figure out what is the difference and how do we try and put those constraints on them to allow that. But it's really hard. So, how do we train people? So I think the more we bring it down the, the, into a reduction, the more we forget about that actually it's a big picture. It's not just a physical component. There's the mental components, the technical, the tactical. Yeah. But this mental side of things, I think we're going to get to a stage where we're always knocking on the door physical, knowing how do we move it forward? How do we move it forward? But it's moving forward in little bits. I think the mental side and the psychological side still is nowhere near moving it forward as much as it can. And I think if you're a, an SSE coach who, who feels that they want to move on, you've got to really start to ask questions of the right people to see why is that changing as well. And I, I think that's going to be the, the area in the next 10 to 15 years that's going to really expand. You know, how do we cope with stress? How do we cope with – and when we start talking about coping with the stress and the anxiety, we then talk about, well, how does that affect physical? Well, if we can cope with that better, we can actually train harder. We can push harder we can recover better but if we don't get the first part why I not, i'm not sure
1: yeah yeah and it's again definitely something i've been guilty of like in my own early days as a strength and condition coach everything was physical it's all oh, well if you clean more weight you're more powerful and therefore you'll hit harder and then you'll get someone who's like well how come this guy's never lifted a weight in his life and uh he's ridiculously Cracking explosive it. yeah you're yeah. yeah. like well why do these anonymously anonymous oh, i can never say the word i'm gonna <laughs> Move on. Uh, but why do those uh, <laughs> outliers exist?
0: Well, I think you've got to be careful that genetics has a large role to play no matter what someone says. Like, no disrespect, but I'm five foot five just. Yeah? I'm never going to crack a serve down at 140 miles per hour, no matter how strong I get or how high I jump. Yeah? Now, that's a skill base as well as a, as a, a physical base. You know, and I think, you know, am I ever going to jump to, like, dunk a basketball? Probably not. That's not because I could, you know, people of my height don't, but I haven't done it for my entire life. Yeah. I haven't trained it. I haven't done it since I was four. So why would that change? So I think genetics do have a play part to play, but also the amount that you do across the board is really important. As in, if you are some kid at five who plays basketball from the age of five and you're five foot six, you will be challenged every day by kids that are taller than you. So funnily enough, naturally, you learn generally to jump higher or to develop more skills. And this is where if you're genetically in a certain bracket, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't be a skilled athlete at a high level just because you don't fit the mold. But you definitely have to be different in the way you approach the game. You know, if you are, you know, tennis is quite good because you can get different people playing the game at different sizes. But you notice that the people that aren't the physically tall people, yeah, generally have a different way of playing.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because in a few of my recent podcasts, we were talking about, um, I suppose, the difference between, for example, style and technique and the decision making process as a coach in terms of, oh, I don't know, that's wrong. You are like, well, is it wrong or is it different? And how do we know?
0: that it's quote-unquote wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's really interesting because, you know, I think, and whether this is a British thing or, you know, I, I've seen a bit of it and I've heard lots of people talk about it, especially with the cricket guys, of, at, or almost trying to train out certain ways of bowling because they think it's going to be an injury problem when actually what they're doing is training out their natural movement flow, which is giving them some advantage that other people don't have and if they've bowled like that for 15 years and not picked up an injury yes obviously there's a case that more and more repetition might cause an injury but if they've got that much load into that movement it's probably pretty strong and what i think we do is that it always has to have technical perfection when actually if it's effective why are we why are we tinkering Hmm. and i think you hear a lot of um like I think golfers and cricketers are classics for that going. I've actually gone back to what I was doing 10 years ago. Why? Because 10 years ago, I was amazing. Now I'm really struggling. So I've, I've got rid of all the, the data. I've got rid of all the knowledge. And I'm now going on back to my feel. I use the data, but now I look at feel. So I, I look at where I want to be, but then I'm looking at feel and I'm, I'm looking at instinct. And I think, how do you measure that? I don't know. Uh, I think it's a really tough thing, but I think it's a really important thing to understand in especially high level guys is that why do we repeat stuff so much why do we why do we get so many repetitions in why do we do so much program well we do that so instinct can take over and they talk about flow and stuff like this where people don't remember but you do all the hard work but then the moment you start thinking about that hard work is the moment that the flow disappears and the instinct disappears and i think you, you do the hard work so it becomes habitual, it becomes automatic. Yeah. We all talk about all professionals being able to do the basics exceedingly well. They do that because then, if we talk about how it does, it clears the mind because you're not thinking about the basics, which allows us to be creative. Um, certain things, certainly, you know, people like Simon Sinek talk about having, and uh, people who like, you know, get things done talk about empty your brain to be creative if, if if you've got loads of stuff going on loads of thoughts you can't be creative and actually at top level creativity in a player is actually the biggest biggest weapon you know with all the data analysis that goes in every sport now everybody knows everything about every player well learn to have a bigger toolbox learn to have a wider spectrum so that if they then go oh we figured you out yeah cool well You haven't because I've got this little sneaky thing here that you haven't seen me do. And I think that's really important to understand is that it's not just about repetition. I think it's about increasing bandwidth and toolboxes of skills. And that's what's going to change because everyone, as I just said, can just get onto a live stream now and probably see someone playing a sport and go, oh, you do this. You change this. Oh, you've done this in this position cool well we now have now how to get around that but if you're not someone that can then expand your skill set you'll just be then caught in that oh i was great for a season and now i'm struggling because everyone's figured me out
1: and on that subject uh something i've just uh, jot down um ironically inspired by another podcast and it's talking about for example yourself as the head of move for sport and I suppose, training others to have a similar thought process to yourself so that you know, for example, you're going to expect the same from them in terms of attitude, in terms of um, work ethic, etc. whilst also, I suppose, creating an environment where you can be open and honest and critique each other. Um, so how do you do that at Move for Sport?
0: Uh, it's really interesting. I, I remember speaking to some of my first early interns, uh, which was 10 years ago now, yeah? And one of the comments was, I'm not trying to create clones of me. That's not what this is about. All I want you to do is, and I'd suggest most of my ex-interns do, um, here's some fundamentals. This is where we should probably be working in, in this sort of bubble. But what you're actually doing inside that bubble is very much you. So if we looked across, especially some of the early interns, everyone who sort of holds the same sort of fundamentals about what they're trying to achieve, but we do it all in very different ways. And so for me, I'm looking to guide, not push or not pull, if that makes sense. I'm not, for me, I, I suppose the best way to describe it is I'm probably standing there with the, with a person going, okay, you've got five paths here. Yeah. This is what happens on each path. These are the skills I feel you bring. Yeah. These paths look pretty cool for you. But what I would suggest is you try all five paths and then figure out which one you want yourself. If you want to come and ask me a question about it, come and ask me a question. And I think one of the things that certainly move for sport deals with from a business point of view is that it is very open and transparent. My my team know where we are. And I know hopefully most of the time where my team are. So if they've got a problem, it just becomes a, can we chat? Yeah, of course we can. Oh, it's not quite working. Okay, should we change things? Now that's lucky because it's small and it's a small business. But what that does mean is that if something does need to change, I don't have to sit there and keep it like, well, this is our product. This is what we do. We go, well, let's, let's just, just try this over here for you. Does this work? And we work with the person. So I think off air, we talked about a coach not wanting the athlete To become what they need but the coach becoming what the athlete needs well from a leader's point of view i'm trying to become and get to a stage where i'm the leader that my i say employees because they're not all employed but all my staff need and then that means that they can come to me and ask questions and then i can then pose questions back down as well which means we get people that are happy going back to and you can see everything linking over between business now and what I deliver is that happy athletes are performing athletes. Well, actually, happy employees, happy staff are performing staff. So there's, there's lots of uh, – we talked about underlying values off air, yeah? And I think that's where it is definitely for me. Um, and I think openness and honesty, I've always believed in it, and I think sometimes that's probably put me in a, some, some problems because maybe I could be classed as naive, but I'd rather trust people first and then figure out that they're not trustworthy second and then deal with it then because otherwise you end up in what we discussed earlier, this negative spiral of everything in life is wrong when actually everything in life should be right.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned, for example, your um, fundamentals and I was almost a bandwidth or a bubble. Um, What do you consider to be the um, fundamentals when you're developing coaches?
0: I think trying to get them to understand that it's relationship first. Yeah. So you can have the best program, the best skills in the world, but if you can't talk to someone and engage with someone, there's no point. And if anything, that becomes even more important at youth level. You know, if you can't engage with a kid, you can't have fun with the kid. Yeah. How's that work? So, you know, certainly when we're looking at uh, the interns and stuff like that, we literally, and I'm pretty sure every intern like I'm would say, I dump them in the deep end. I literally go, there you go, there's 20 kids, crack on. Now, some sink, some swim, some sink and then re-swim, <laughs> if that makes sense. But they then learn quickly that if they're not interacting, if they're not getting involved, yeah? it doesn't matter how good the session is that they've just like planned. It all goes down the, down the road very quickly. And I think for me, if we are not encouraging coaches to understand how to coach, which seems mind boggling that that is even a sentence. Yeah. But if we have only have coaches that are consumed and I say consumed because data is important, but consumed with data and only interested in, the outcome and we can see plenty of um examples of this in high level sport all over the news right now where people are now looking at we haven't looked after the athlete anymore. We've only looked after the medals. We've only looked after the funding and the numbers. I I I personally feel that we, we miss a we miss a trick. And I think I'm sure some people will disagree with me and say, well hang on, if you're not getting this right, you're not pushing, we're not pushing the boundaries, we're not doing this. And I turn around to that and say, fine. If that's the way you want to do it, then that's your point of view. I believe that there's always a human being first. Always a human being first. No matter whether that's a human being who's five or a human being that's 65. Yeah, There's always a human being first. That everybody wants to actually deep down enjoy the day, the session. Yeah, And anyone who turns around to me and says, that's not the case I'm sorry you can have your opinion but that's not true everybody wants to enjoy what they do some people can't enjoy it and they have to stick it but deep down they'd rather enjoy what they do and maybe that's maybe that's naive maybe that's me just having this lovely what's the word silver lined view of the world yeah and being naive but again i think that everyone needs to be happy and enjoy what they do to get the best out of them whether that's as a coach whether that's as a player whether that's actually as just a normal human being and finally enough the times when we struggle with regard to mentally and if we look now in the last is actually the time where we haven't been interacting where we have been put back into solitude where we haven't been creating relationships and working with them So it's actually almost like we were in a petri dish right now for the last year of seeing that relationships are actually really important. Well, we've just had a whole year of a petri dish of understanding that relationships are unbelievably important because if we don't have them, we're struggling. Well, let's not go back to numbers. Let's not go back to data only. Let's not get back to programming. Let's not get back to asking, are we getting better? Yeah, let's get back to maybe asking, how are you feeling today? What do you want to do?
1: And in terms of, so you mentioned about the importance of the relationship building and the um, relationships with the athletes. When it comes to observing your interns or providing feedback, I'm sure it's easy enough if you wanted to, to start saying, oh, I don't know, the technical points of the movement. Do you have any, um, I suppose, a framework for providing feedback with how they're interacting with the athletes? Or is that something that's just developed uh, just from your own experiences and what you see on the day no so we, we've got a bit of a coaching checklist
0: that goes through things like you know um i, I believe that it, there's certain things you know where are you positioning yourself what questions are you asking yeah have you asked open-ended questions so that we've got almost like a checklist like this so the idea that you know did you did you walk through what they were going to do have you then given a bit of a debrief at the end yeah so what if I'm being honest, what I class as basic coaching, yeah, but weirdly, that's actually what needs to be learned. I know that sounds really basic, but and then it's like, well, what are you doing? You know, you're working with an eight-year-old, but you're standing above them. Are you, do you not want to? And you're standing above them with your arms crossed, looking at them. Well, why do you? Why, why don't? Why don't you sit down below their eye line so they're looking down to you? Why don't you make sure you're in their eye line rather than standing behind them? You know, these these are what I class as basic coaching, but also for me, I've always felt quite natural in my coaching approach. But these are things that I've obviously done naturally, but are actual coaching procedures that we should all be following. Yeah. But we all get stuck in this, why are you sitting down? type thing. And you almost get accused of why are you sitting down? You know, this you should be up around. no no no. I'm sitting down for a reason. I'm not sitting down because I'm just sitting down and chilling. I'm sitting down because every movement I'm making now, I don't probably think so much anymore because it comes quite naturally. But you then should be thinking about why am I here? Why am I standing in this position? Why am I saying these words? Why am I saying these words in this way? Because it's not just about the communication out of your mouth. It's about the communication with your body. And we know that what we actually show is mainly through here and in expressions especially with kids they ain't <laughs> they ain't listening to what's coming out your mouth generally yeah and if they are you're lucky so what you're actually talking about is things like tone pitch um, but also about understanding that how does a relationship blossom so i think we talked off off air about what's the difference between having a session your first session with a 10-year-old kid with the parent there, and then having a, a pretty in-depth conversation with an 18-year-old that we're trying to figure out what's happening. Well, if you've developed a relationship over eight years, you're going to be saying a lot more interesting things out here that actually have nothing to do with what you are as an S&C coach. Nothing to do with your S&C knowledge at all back here you're probably actually using your youth s and c knowledge massively because you're trying to get some numbers over to the parent to make sure they understand because obviously they're the stakeholder at that level they're the people that are going to pay the bill they're the people that are going to drive the kid to the uh the session if they're not involved that's not going to work now i would suggest someone asked me the other day i did a a presentation on a, a player that i work with and they said what's changed and i said I do less S and C now and I'm more worry about emotions and feelings now than I definitely did 10 years ago. Yes, of course I have to go, well, I need that in there. I need this in here. I need this monitored. But actually I just care about my first comment most of the days. How are you feeling today? I think it's such an underrated comment. How are you feeling today? How did that rep feel for you? So now I'm getting back to reps, but how did that feel for you? I don't know. I can technically see. But if I'm being honest, you know far better how that felt than I did. So why don't I ask you? And I think the ability to interact and ask the right questions. And and with kids, it's tough because all you get is yes, no, or even silence. Yeah. So the ability to not just be using the right words, but the the tone and the way that you, you know, I, I still believe guided discovery is the way kids should learn you know, let them fail a little bit. Let them figure it out. I think schools are really bad. And this sounds harsh because I know that you're a a teacher. So I'm I'm aiming this uh, at you, but I'm pretty sure you don't do this. I'm really bad at going, you can't fail. You can't fail this exam. We shouldn't, you know, you've got to get this mark. You can't get a fail. In fact, we actually give you a fail. You know, we give you an F. Yeah. Well, is that a fail or is that you just realizing that, yeah, maybe you have not done enough work or that this isn't, the way you should be going in your life it's another subject yeah i you know i, I always and then it's like even on court don't uh, or, or don't fail don't don't miss that shot don't lose yeah no 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 no. Like, do what you need to do you know in the gym weirdly i look at actually failing's cool because failing means you're pushing boundaries in a safe constructed way of course but you're figuring out what you can't do and then if you're not pushing to that sort of limit, then we're not, we're not going to change anything. If that makes sense, because we're not adapting. So I, I, yeah, I, I do struggle sometimes with this. Um, But for me, it it, it has to be about that.
1: And speaking about getting getting things wrong, um, if you will, something that I've been thinking about lately is uh, the word compensation and how for example, we'll look at a movement pattern in the gym, so I don't know, squat, lunge, whatever, and uh, if something's different to the technical model, it's a compensation, and it's like, oh, well, you know, something's going on there, and when we see it in sport, depending on which viewpoint we take, we think, oh, that's a fantastic interpretation of, I don't know, this technical model, um, so I suppose my question is, when it comes to assessing movement outside of a gym setting where there's, I don't know, this predetermined technical model, is how do you expand the way that your interns look at a movement and how they interpret what they can do to change it or whether they even need to make a change? Yeah, that's
0: really interesting. I think, you know, one of the things that I got out of my masters was um, the corrective exercise and the ability to start assessing and figuring out where things go wrong. And it's interesting because so when i first did it i was like oh my god there's so much going on i don't know what's going on and then over the years you start realizing that yes we can do basic overhead squat screens we can do tuck jump screens which we use and i'm not i'm not especially when you've got lots of people it's great video repeat video you can get some change however the older you get every movement you see becomes a corrective screen and then you then have to make some very interesting judgment calls about if you then do see something that you think is a compensation, does changing it either increase performance outcome, maintain performance outcome, or decrease performance outcome? Because you can easily change something. And I, I learned the hard way, not going to lie. I worked with a a senior golfer who was at the senior open um, at Walton Heath. And he came over about two, three weeks before from the States. And I actually was just giving him a massage because he just wanted loosening up. Yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah, that feels much better. And we did a few tests and his external rotation through his left arm was quite poor. So obviously, if we think about the golf shot, we need the external rotation to go through. And he said, yeah, yeah, no, I've been trying to work on that for ages. And, you know, the guys in there. So all I did was go, oh, I'm being my pleasing self and my helpful self. Right, let's crack on. So we then worked on some external rotation. We, we loosened up the shoulder. We did that. And he was like, oh, this feels great, yeah? He didn't even make the cut. Because what we'd actually done is changed his ability to get through the ball which meant he couldn't keep the ball on the fairway because we changed something that so was uh, inherent in his skill that his compensation was actually keeping him in the right place. So I think if we have compensations as a younger child, we can probably play with them quite a lot, which is why I love the corrective exercise work for kids because it allows us to keep them in really good shapes, especially as they go through puberty and their PHV. By doing it we're keeping them working through good ranges when they definitely get tighter yeah because their bones are definitely growing quicker than their muscles everything's going they're gaining weight we want to keep them in good movements obviously if you start picking on elite athletes at 20 21 22 some of these compensations are there for a reason now the only time if you really i feel that you really want to work On a weakness, so a compensation, that could be another weakness of some description, is you have to do it pretty far out from competition. I've always believed that you deal with weaknesses and compensations in pre-seasons and early season, but mainly pre-season. And then as you're getting through to competitive, the only thing you're dealing with is strength. You're dealing with all the positives. You're just going, right, what do you like doing? I like to snatch. Okay, we'll snatch, yeah? Or the other way around is like, I don't like squatting heavy before comp. Good, we will go and do it then. However, what you are unbelievable at, yeah, is you're great at box jumping. Well, let's do that, yeah? So work with the strength, not the weakness, yeah? Because from a mental side of things as well, yeah? You want to be working on all your strengths as you're coming up to competing, physically and mentally. The last thing you want to be doing is going, I'm struggling with this movement.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because just in hearing you talk about youth athletes, I remember working for a tennis club myself and their procedure was um for example the overhead squats and stuff like that and uh one of them all filmed and they were very much of a and this is definitely where my thinking was at a few years ago um in terms of for example if you see the knees coming in it's like oh, definitely tight adductors definitely weak glutes or whatever and then i have stepped back and thought about it and i was like hang on a minute the girl performing this overhead squat is eight years old this is the first time she's explored this position um yeah and you're like actually just and this is where my programming was at the time so i'm just going to expose you to different squat patterns we're not going to worry about goblet squat facts so or we're just going to get into the movement in different ways and we're going to explore that because you've not learned yeah. to...
0: well that's a really interesting thing so i'm not going to turn around and decide you know we do a, a video so it becomes quite subjective especially if you've got 120 kids so it's like, oh my lord, i got 120K target. So they then give get in a sheet, which would have some of the corrective stuff on. So you'll roll, your duct, you integrate, you activate, or oh, so activate, integrate. However, one of the other things I say is before you start, especially on an individual basis, mucking about with that, why don't you just ask the kid to see if they can squat down and push their knees out? Why don't you ask them and cue them first? I always believe cue the pattern first, yeah? If you're queuing the pattern first after you've seen the compensation and they can't change it, then you can start going down the road of, mm, are they physically struggling to make that movement? Are they tight? Are they weak? Are they, I don't like tight and weak, but probably, nah, yeah, yeah. you know, you know uh, is it overactive, underactive? Is it long? Is it short? I think there's lots to be said for all different, but I think as a kid, have you asked them and shown them and worked on them just to create the skill of the movement. Well, if you haven't done that, you don't know whether they can do it. So ask that question first. And I tell you what, most of the time, if you ask the question, they'll be able to do it after you give a few queuing. Well, that's just staves you having to do six months of corrective work that you don't see any difference because there isn't any difference because all they needed to do was just go, I'm just going to put my knee over my toe. Perfect. Great. That doesn't mean that they don't need it because some people, and especially during growth, will tighten up. But you've got to make the choice about do they need it or do they don't. And on an individual basis, I don't think there's any real um, reason why you wouldn't try and get them to do stuff when they're growing. But also, if they've got the shapes, well, why don't we load them? You know, there's this big hoo-ha about loading kids and bits and pieces. And I, I think... I think age is always always needs to be overruled by maturational status. Definitely, yeah? But weirdly, I also think maturational status gets overruled by technical competency. And I think that's something that's, that's not talked about enough. They're all like, oh, we've got to be careful during this, you know, the PHV, we've got to be careful during this growth period. Well, that's lovely, but PHV is individual and doesn't always mean that they've just grown once it just means that's the fastest they've ever grown and we would have a window but that doesn't mean they're not going to grow so if they grow 12 centimeters in one year that's lovely so they've done that but that doesn't mean in two years time they're not going to go 10 centimeters 10 centimeters 10 centimeters so your phv says they're growing here but it doesn't mean they ain't going to grow bigger later on just not at that highest velocity so you sort of sit there and you go You can't just work around a, an estimation. It helps because then you can play with it and work with it. But I still believe, and it's one of the things that I've talked to a few people about that. If someone's struggling with a movement and you've got load on them, take the load away. Now try and play with a more complicated part of that movement. So you talked about changing different squat patterns. I totally agree. So I love the idea of complexity. So, You've got a, I don't know, a six foot one 16 16-year-old boy that's really struggling to stay stable in a barbell squat. Okay, well, I don't really want to load him because it looks like it's going funky. Cool, take the barbell off. Right, let's have a play at some curtsy squats. Let's have some play at some singles. Let's have some play at some lateral squats. Let's have some play with me chucking a ball while you're doing it at you, yeah? Okay, cool. Now even, you know, and I, I'm not, there is place for, perturbed work underfoot and perturbed work um, from above. Have a bit of that. Right, cool, now stick them back into the squat. And funnily enough, because everything's ramped up stabilizer-wise, they look so much better. But by making it more complex, we've actually made the simpler exercise being able to be loaded more because you're far more stable. Because what we don't want is load on dysfunction or load on instability. So if we can create the body to turn around and go, we can now become more stable, we can now create more load. And I think that's what you said earlier, what do I train the guys to have the relationship? The relationship is about, yeah, having fun, but the relationship is about knowing what you're seeing, knowing what they're feeling, and then not sticking to the rule book. Not sticking to, well, the program that Gareth developed on on the squad says, It should be eight reps of single leg split squat. This is the load they should be using right now. If it doesn't look right, chuck it out the window and figure it out, especially at that level where things change. yeah. Um, And this is one of the things that I really go. If it doesn't look right, it probably isn't right. So have a crack and figure out how to change it. If that means they don't load for three weeks, I don't care. yeah. Let's get things right. And that means that, Going back to even what we're saying about programming and reps. Yes, we can have a lovely program, but it, it's about what you do with it. Anyone can write a program with Google. Anyone can get into some information. But if we're not coaching there and then, in the moment, we've got it wrong.
1: And just in going back to the movement screen example, I remember when I was uh, interning with the IS and something they were massive on was making sure you're focusing on the adaptation, not the exercise. And if you said, for example, I don't know, I think the knees are coming in because the textbook says it's, I don't know, weak glutes, tight adapters, they'd be like, how do you know it's not? For example, in this eight year old girl, and certainly young females that I've worked with, the mobility range is just like ridiculous. Like they can probably make do a sumo squat and touch their knees together. And you're like, how can you tell me it's a mobility limitation when their bodies can get into these positions that me and you'd have no chance?
0: And it's really interesting that you mentioned the mobility, hypermobility issue. So, one of the things I would say, if you, if I see a anywhere between twelve and sixteen year old kid drop down into an unbelievable squat, I immediately go to my interns, You need to check whether they're hypermobile, <laughs> because there's not many that can do it. Yeah, which makes difference. I also think that at what point does our spectrum or our of work and our bandwidth start to really need other people to help us so if we're doing an overhead screen i look at that and go why am i doing overhead screen well i'm looking at over screen to create good movement processes good how far down the line do i go so for example if i've got someone who's shifting in their hips what am i going to say am i just going to make a subjective choice well probably with 120 kids i probably am I'm probably going to go, you've got a hip shift. We're going to need to work on adductors on one leg, glutes on another. Yeah. Because you can't deal with it on an individual basis. Do I then start going, okay, let's have a look at internal, external rotation ranges. Let's look at manual muscle testing. Do I get the goniometer out? Yeah. Now, if you can do that and you've been trained to do that, yeah, crack on. But that's where all of a sudden you can go, well, where's my physio screening? So my physio screening is now showing this. So I speak to physio. So this isn't quite where it needs to be. No. So what do you want us to do? Are you going to do some work? Am I going to do some work? Are we doing some work at the same time? And that's where people talk about multidiscipline. I don't like multidisciplinary as a word because it suggests different disciplines in pods. I think interdisciplinary is a far better word because it means everyone's working together for the same outcome. Um, so I think, yes if you have access to those sort of people and if you haven't, you need to start increasing your network, get good physios, osteopaths, whichever way you want to go, get good psychologists, good nutritionists, good coaches together. Yeah. Work together. Yeah. But I think, you know, going back to what you were saying about the EIS about how do you know? And I think it's someone asked you that ask five, why five times, why does that work? No. So why? No. So why? So why? And you get to a stage where eventually you get to an end game. You're like, I don't know. And actually with the body, most of the time, if you ask enough why's you come to, I don't know. Yeah. Because the body is such a complicated bit of kit and you can look at things like, you know, anatomy trains by Myers, where they're, you know, this sort of stuff where, yeah we haven't even looked at that and he was he was classed you know years ago as an absolute out there, yeah whereas now we're looking at some of those slings and lines as things that we work with still as and he will even admit it's nothing's mega proven it's just theories so i think I think it is tough, and I think you know we can look at things like e m g s and go, well you know if you're doing like a, a kettlebell swing, you're gonna fire certain muscles better there, which then would lead to some same for, same sort of firing pattern as a change of direction. You can, but what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get a better firing, a quicker firing, an increase in cross-sectional area? So you knowing the justification is quite important because then that should then lead your programming. But I think some of this stuff is really hard to find out without a lot of technical help, as in a lot of technical kit. So sometimes you just have to look at the movement and go, Okay, that movement doesn't look right. So let's say what you discussed where the knee drops in. Okay, so I need the knee to go the other way. So what I'm training is not a muscle, I'm training a movement. So how do I move that knee? Can she move it on her own? No, that's a cueing thing. Okay. So is there some tightness in internal, external rotation? Yeah? is there a little bit of weakness compared to the other side? Because you can't sit there and do, if you haven't got a dynamometer or something like that, you can't put some real numbers. You just have to go, yeah, it feels a little bit weak. Can she hold? No. Okay, let's put a bit of strength in the glute, the hammy, but also let's think about what's happening with the core. Because, yeah, again, we're not just a muscle that makes that movement occur. There's all sorts of stabilizers, synergists, agonists, antagonists, which are making that movement capable to be done in a smooth, efficient manner. If we're not doing everything and we're just training one thing. So I'm not saying that I wouldn't put someone on uh, an accessory machine, like a leg press, but there'd be a reason, you know, if I'm looking for a massive cross-sectional area, but I know that their core and um, body is not good enough to take that. then I mean, then yeah, I'd stick them on a leg press to get them a cross sectional area by working on a hypertrophic way. But, you know, generally the body works as a whole unit not as one piece of movement, you know? And I think that's something that I've taken away from a lot of physios and some really good physios and osteopaths I've worked with. And even with some of them, I've looked at that and most of those guys are really good work on the basis that we have to obviously do some isolation work to get through the first part of rehab, but everything then has to become part of a multiple chain because the compensation is being led from somewhere. And most of the time, it's not where the pain is. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, But also, I think some of it is time dependent because you can sit there and spend hours working on data and technical bits and with a player. But when it comes down to it, you've got a kid in front of you that has just squatted down and shifted right because their right knee drops in. Uh, Yeah, sorry, uh, shifted, yeah. Cool. Just say, how about you just try and push your knees out? oh, look, that solved the problem. I didn't need to, like, get them EMG'd up. I didn't need to see whether they're, what's firing. We just needed to queue them. And I think that's the biggest point from this, is that if we don't queue it first, we don't know. They could waste a lot of time delivering without the queuing.
1: Yeah, and on the subject of wasting time, like, I think I've definitely gone from thinking, like, corrective exercise, right, roll this, activate this, integrate that, um, whereas my warm-ups now it's so like right what do you do to warm up to squat oh i take a lighter weight and i squat it as fast as i can and you're like oh well that's raising my pulse because i'll do enough reps that's activating if i i don't know squeeze muscles in certain places it's mobilizing because i'm doing the exact pattern and it's potentiating because i don't know maybe i'll turn that squat into a squat on a jump and you think it's so easy like you were saying with going um, I can't remember whether this was our off-air chat or whether we were on air, but saying about athletes going back to what they were doing 10 years ago because it just felt right.
0: Yeah, I, it's interesting because in theory, what you're describing is a ramp protocol. Yeah. But I, I look back now and I, you know, and, and Ian Jeffries with the ramp protocol, is giving some basic structure, which you were, but actually your activation, your mobilization pretty much steps in the same thing. Yeah, Yeah. 100%. you know, so when it comes down to it, I look back and whether it was right or wrong, like going back to my basic warm ups when I was I was dealing with like um, some of the, the tennis players at Sutton. It was like, I just need to get you into the positions and into some sort of velocity that you're about to deliver. So these are the movements we need. Let's make sure we work the way through. Yes, we do a little bit of a pulse razor. But then it was interesting. I, I, I'm I sitting there going, people go, oh, let's do games as pulse raisers. And I'm sitting there going, okay, so I'm going to give a competitive advantage, yeah, to somebody in a game situation, which means they're going to have a reactive load where they're going to run around like headless chickens. And yes, definitely get their pulse up. But also in my brain, I'm thinking I've now just created more load probably than I actually would in a normal game. Well, well hang on. is a fun competitive game the right way to go for a pulse raiser and my brain started thinking well no i just need to get these people moving into places where they would go and maybe slowly just challenging stuff that they might be going further so you know if we're doing an arabesque as a bit of a warm-up well are we doing arabesque with an amazing reach rather than just an arabesque i think the other thing with warm-ups as we're on one is that Let's make sure that we're putting some intent and some variation there, because if we don't, the intent decides to disappear. And also, if you're dealing with the individual, and I think we have to be very careful here that we have to think that we've got an individual we're dealing with and we've got a group of players. Because as an individual, the warm-up can be an absolute winner for trying to change stuff, because you've got another 15, 20 minutes to really put something in that can change. With a group of 10 to 15, 20 players, what you've got to do is make sure it's organised and that we're trying to deal with as many of the movements that they're going to deliver in the next hour and a half's worth of what they're going to do. And that's a tougher call.
1: See This is where it's really interesting because what you've described two minutes ago was exactly the warm-up I did yesterday with my uh, year sevens. And they absolutely loved like, it. Was, we just had a massive sports hall to ourselves And I was like, right, I'm going to move in a certain way. I want you to copy me as best you can. And at any given point, I'm going to randomly sprint to one of the corners of the sports hall. Do not be the last person there. Um, And literally, we were doing different crawls. We were doing different skips, running backwards. And then I just sprint. And then obviously, depending on where you were in the hall, obviously, it's different each time. Um, But the reason for that was, I want maximum intensity. I want to buy into the fact that you're excited to be back in school and yeah, some of your patterns will look different to mine, but we're just chucking a lot of different patterns at you. And ironically, maybe that will get your heart rate up more than what you'll get in the um, game. Yeah, yeah context uh, is really,
0: re- really interesting, really interesting. Because so, you know, I look at the ramp protocol and I, I would say that if you're activating and mobilizing the right way, you're slowly raising your temperature anyway. Exactly. So, so if, you are, if you are walking forward in a lunge, Yeah. A a nice pace to get going. And then you're coming back. Yeah. And you're starting to do some marching or some rotating your heart rate's up. Well, do all of that first and use that as your heart rate raiser at the same time as activating mobilizing. And then your potentiation, which is your fun speedy games starts to potentiate you like, you know, Ian Jeffrey says to get you to your game speed. So I suppose the question is, do you need a, a pulse raiser? If actually your movement, uh, sorry, your activation and mobilizations get you your pulse rate. Yeah. Well, you you said it perfectly. Like, well, let's squat, but now let's add some velocity to the squat. Well, there's your heart rate, especially if it's body weight. Very interesting. Very yeah. interesting how it changes in concept. But but yeah, no, I I have always wondered why everyone goes. Let's play a game. And hey, I remember back to the sun. I remember I was playing frisbee, like extreme frisbee oh my god the amount of like injuries we picked up in the first 10 minutes of the flipping <laughs> session yeah it was like what am i doing why is this going so wrong and it wasn't just you know uh, contact injuries it was like oh i pinned my hamstring. i'm like i'm not surprised you just sprinted 20 meters at full pelt to take it in the end zone oh yeah of course you have and then you sort of sit and think but it has to be fun
1: yeah it
0: has to be fun you have to get them you have to get them buzzing and and, you know, I think some really good ideas where you're doing non-competitive stuff, but maybe together. So like on a tennis court, like, are you just trying to keep the, the ball up a certain amount of times? Yeah. So you're still getting that. Or, or are you just walking around with a little like American football and just just doing some throws to each other? So you're still warming stuff up with variation, but it's not a very competitive environment. And you lead the competitive environment until everything's been properly warmed up. And then you're potentiated ready to go.
1: Yeah. And this again, this is interesting because when I was um when I was interning at a professional cricket club and as someone without a cricket background, I've never really understood it, but they started all their warm-ups um cool. with a game of football, split into and we literally we did this at Lords one time. <laughs> it's like oh, a bunch of professional cricketers split into two teams of football. And I said to the head S and C I was like is this not like, you know, what, what if one of them pulls a hammy? And he's like, yeah, but look at the dimensions of the pitch. Look at the play at the number of players on each team. like, no one's getting up to full speed with the dimensions of the pitch. And he's like, we've never pulled a hammy. And he's like, that's raised their pulse. They're excited to be here. If I said, right, boys, take a lap, they, you're not going to raise the pulse because they're going to spend half the time chatting and they're not going to yeah. want to be there.
0: And yet again, I think that goes back down to intent and justification. But... I feel what has to be done and what I certainly when I remember it was at Sutton and it wasn't until things started happening, you sort of go, have I thought about that? And that was the learning curve, yeah? So if I thought about it, what would we have done? Well, maybe we wouldn't have had such a big pitch, yeah? And that's, I think, the learning curve. And I think it's about making sure that you have constrained what you want to constrain to get what you want to get and not just gone, let's just have a bit of fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And in speaking with um, a chap called Ben Pullen, he said, and this is one of my bugbears, not a massive bugbear, because there's nothing wrong with fun, but it's like, where does that start? So, for example, I might say, right, I want to get some loaded squat pants, So I might do, I don't know, roll to squat. I might be like, right, squat down with your eyes closed, cone on your head, whatever. And it's fun or it's funner, but we're still getting a movement outcome, which if we start with the game, then it's like, how do I progressively overload or to quote him is like, how do you build a scheme of work on stuck in the mud is that world oh, okay. oh that's massive easy that's easy that's brilliant <laughs> yeah. um uh, i'm trying to remember where i was going with that but uh yeah.
0: sorry but, but yeah you're right it, it you know hey you, gamification is something that's very interesting especially in youth populations you know how do we make stuff fun that actually if we broke it down to the basics is boring like, I want to see a squat. Why would I want to squat? I don't need to squat. This isn't why. I, I want to hit a ball. I want to kick a ball. I want to run around. I want to score a goal. I want to have some fun with my mates. Mm. That's why the gamification ideas are uh, are unbelievable at youth level. Mm. Yeah. How, how do we make the boring unbelievably fun and engaging? Well, let's create challenge. Let's create games yeah you said like can you get up with the comb still on your head you know we've got some lovely things on the on the move for sports side at the moment where whereby we've got like you know people with shoes on the bottom of their soles trying to get up and trying to turn over it doesn't have to have loads of technical kit it just has to be challenging and generally kids love challenge kids love challenge they will go at it all the time so the more you can challenge them the better they will then slowly develop
1: And it kind of comes back to uh, what we were talking about earlier about schools set up so kids can't fail. But Actually, what I've particularly enjoyed in terms of teaching PE virtually is the movement challenges we've set and the amount of kids who are like, oh, I tried this six, seven, eight times. Even us as a PE department, we're like, oh, I can't believe I've not been able to do that. I've got to give that another go. got to give that another go. And you're like, well, if you did it first time, it kind of takes, like you were saying earlier, you kind of need to go through the sort of, I suppose, the, grace guys to appreciate the blue so if i show you a challenge and you do it first time you're like oh that was easy
0: well they also with that always think they can achieve and if that keeps going on in life the time they fail becomes the biggest drop ever and that then they can't deal with because they've never dealt with it so the classic example is where you've got an early maturer that beats everyone all the time maybe doesn't work as hard because just they can literally do more yeah, because they're genetically bigger and gifted. And then all of a sudden, everyone starts to catch up. And technically, they've had to find creative ways to beat that sort of person. So they start getting to their same size. And all of a sudden, they're able to beat them easy. And this guy is, or girl is way behind the curve now. And they just go, wow, I can't deal with this. You know, this, this is something wrong. Now, well, there's not. It's just you haven't dealt with failure. And until you've dealt with failure, you can't actually really appreciate winning or succeeding, if that makes sense. It's, you know, how can you appreciate something when you haven't seen the other side of it? You can't. And that's the tough part. And I think that's what kids don't get taught enough. They don't get taught that, you know, you can only appreciate the good stuff when you've had the bad stuff otherwise the good stuff is all you've ever had so the only way you can appreciate the good stuff yeah is by having even more good stuff and that's where our society is i want this now i want amazon <laughs> i want to click a button i want it at my door tomorrow what do you mean tomorrow i couldn't have got that 20 years ago in five weeks yeah but it's that instant gratification that all of our younger population seems to seek so if they've been trained in that, the idea of working through a long-term process, it's almost like, even having that conversation, the mind's blown. What do you mean it's going to take me eight weeks to do this? Shut up. (laughs) I'm not doing that. Yeah, And, you know, to even have the idea of, uh, I, I think quite a lot of beans going out recently about return to play. Sorry, so we're about to have a conversation with a kid that, you need to look at a 10 week return to play. The kid's going, you're having a laugh. I'm going to go and smash a load of tennis balls now because I haven't done it for six weeks. Why? Why? No, no. If you do that, you're going to break. (laughs) No, I want to go. I love my tennis. I'm going to go and hit some tennis balls. Okay. They don't get the idea of that time span. Everything should occur now today. In fact, not even today, actually in the next half an hour. And if it doesn't, that's a problem. And I think social media has got a big part to play in that. I think we spoke a lot offline about this. That you know the idea that everything is now, everything has to be responded to, and we talked about uh, fear of missing out. Yeah, and that's putting so much pressure on kids now, and actually weirdly, the adults as well. You know, you, you you see all you know all this conferences on, this is on, this, this lectures on, and even for my say, like, oh, should I do that? Should I do that? And it's like all of a sudden every night and every morning you've got a conference or a webinar that you should, you think you should be at because you might be missing out on something. And it, and it's like, everyone just, sounds bad, needs to take a chill pill and breathe. I don't think enough people breathe for a living. <laughs> They're just like, I want, I want, I want, I want. And actually what you end up with is uh, overconsumption. And with overconsumption, you, you, you don't go anywhere.
1: It's going to the, the webinar thing you just mentioned. It's almost like, with social media everything is hyperbolic so it's like oh this webinar will revolutionize the way you've been coaching this minute aspect of your coaching and you're like oh well obviously no one's going to be trying to sell their webinar podcast whatever being like this was just a nice chin wag that me and gareth had maybe you want to take a listen on a walk sometime like it's like no this is absolutely the podcast you must listen to today otherwise it's going to expire and you miss out
0: Yeah. yeah, And the other thing I find as well is you get onto one and then there may be some really cool stuff with it. Yeah. You may hear some really cool stuff. And then I go, I now feel guilty because in my in my world, I look at it and go, well, I've been doing stuff that's been working for a long time. Yeah. And these things work. And this guy's now turned around and said that this looks amazing. And I quite like that. And it sort of is against what I've been doing. And I sit there and go, well, I shouldn't really put it in my program tomorrow, then, should I? And I'm like, but I really want to because it looks really cool. And I'm like, yeah, but I feel really guilty because that's really bad because I'm only looking at it because it's really cool. And it's about then trying to understand that I've got to that stage where I'd love to learn new stuff to the fact that the more I learn, the less I know. And I'm getting to that stage now that uh, I keep going on webinars and people keep telling me stuff and I'm sitting there going, I know absolutely nothing. Yeah, like not a jot about anything. And that discovering new stuff is cool. But what I get round to is that discover the new stuff. And yes, doesn't mean you shouldn't use it, but make sure you're putting it in for the right reason. Going back to what we said about intent and justification for programming. Yeah? There's too many people that we oh it's cool. And then all of a sudden it's in it's in the program for tomorrow when it would never have been in there before and probably shouldn't be in there until a certain time plate. And I think that's where I I struggle because I see all this cool stuff. Oh, yeah, I love that. And then you're like, no, no, Gareth, that's wrong. Let's think about where that should go. Yeah. And I think, you know, you see too many things where something goes out and even from a big name and even something that looks really good. And then all of a sudden, everybody's doing it. And you sort of go, that can't be right for everybody, as in every strength and conditioning coach, to be delivering that to every athlete. Because not every athlete's the same. But yeah, Yeah. it's all over the place. You're like, yeah,
1: Yeah. it's funny because I think um, I've seen a lot of, for example, game speed type warm ups um, from private school settings. And I can tell you from experience, they work pretty darn well. Um, But then they're sort of um, touted as the panacea and cure all for um, strength conditioning within the PE curriculum. And I'm like, okay, teach in a, again, not to make a huge generalization, but to, apply that into a state school setting and see how far you get. Because I've done it before where I don't know, my logistics hasn't quite been on point and I can just say, right, oh no, actually you guys need to be over there. Whereas in another environment, I'd be like, if I made that mistake, then the session's gone. See you later.
0: And, I, and that goes back, I've probably back to where we were almost at the beginning whereby it was like, there's a difference between coaching from a book and coaching in real life and having the experience over time to have failed, to have gone, Oh, go over there. And then realize that they've run off to the bus stop or you never see them again. Yeah. <laughs> um, and thinking, well, hang on. I'm, I'm three kids down. Where have they gone? Yeah. Um, and unless you've done that and experienced that, you then don't realize that because you're just going from book and books are great to I, probably the best way I describe it is that books are great, for you to gain knowledge, but there's a difference between how you apply that knowledge and how you do it. And the only way you can apply that knowledge is by doing it and then doing it again and then deciding was it good or bad and then learning from the experience of it because everything's different when applied. Yeah. And I suppose with research as well, that's what the tough thing is, especially about youth. Most research, and let's be very honest, yeah, is done on generally college age students to past dissertations generally that's a bit of a sweeping statement but generally there is some really cool stuff coming out of youth but there's not actually tons and tons so there's all these people that walk in and go oh yeah like four by four that's really good and i go cool there's 20 kids you can do four by four by them Back on see what happens yeah see what happens yeah and it's like we need to be more specific with regard to youth with regard to research definitely and there's some great people doing some, you know, good, you know you've got your Rodri's, you've got your Avery starting to try and ask the right questions, yeah. Um, I think schools play a big part in this, that schools should be allowing more researchers into them to try and do interventions, to try and do testing, to figure out what's really happening in a school environment. Not what's happening in this little bubble that we've created, but what can we actually really do? So, you know, could we turn around to a school and go, right, All we're going to do is we're going to give you a water bottle for every kid that sits on their desk and we're going to engage with half of the year. We'll do physical activity at this time and half the year won't. And then we're going to look at their exam results and then we're going to flip it to make sure they don't miss out. These are things that they're already in an environment where it could work quite easily. I just don't see enough of that. What I call real world research. Yeah, if that makes sense.
1: I think my main issue or critique of the research, and I think it's difficult because of the way that research is constrained, but a lot of times I'll read an intervention and like, for example, speaking to Ben Pullen about his PhD, I learned more from being able to speak with him be like, what did you do with your kids? And he was talking about offering them 20 quid to touch the backboard. And he's like, all of a sudden they're running, go, go, go. Um, and I'm like, <laughs> that makes... That makes more sense to me than, for example, reading the methods section. It's like each kid was instructed to stand with their toes behind the line. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and sometimes you sit there and you go, I'm reading this and it's taken me an hour and a half to read this. But actually, if I spoke to someone, they would have literally been able to tell me it in 15 minutes. Type mm-hmm. thing. And I think I think that's something really interesting. But, yeah, I, I get you know, me, myself and a, a chap called Chris McLeod had exactly the same conversation about. Uh, we had a guy that just wouldn't sprint. Well, he would sprint, but not very hard. And then I chuck a tennis ball up at the end of the 20-meter sprint, and all of a sudden, he's absolutely on fire. So I still think motivation is something that we we haven't even really touched on about how do people motivate themselves, yeah? How do people get that, that drive and that intent? And I think intent is something that is never really talked about enough. You know, 20 quid to touch a backboard. I'm going to try and jump high yeah there's a tennis ball at the end i want to get to it before it drops twice not i'm just running through a couple of speed dates or i'm just jumping off a, yeah,
1: a platform do as best as you can
0: whatever yeah and you know for all we know their cat died yesterday it's only a snapshot we don't know how mentally they're prepared so yeah it's really interesting you say that but i, I agree with the research is that sometimes it's just and uh, hey i'm 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 stupid So I look at research and I read research and sometimes I'm sitting there going, why are there all these really long complicated words when you could have probably said exactly what you wanted to say in half the time in much simpler words, but it just looks fancy. Now, maybe I'm being a bit big because it's not that I don't read research, but sometimes I'm reading for research and I'm having to read it five or six times the same paragraph because I'm just not understanding it. Now, I think there are some good sites out there that are now trying to like take the research and put it into more practical settings and simplify it down, so you you don't get caught like that. But you know, there's a, a couple of things like a research reading club which I've um, gone to recently, whereby it's been ages since I've done stats, so I'm looking through, going, i have got a clue what this is. What's error one? What's error two? Yeah. And but being in part of a network, someone's going, Ah, oh, error one's this, error two's this, and I'm like, oh, that's really helpful. Yeah. And sometimes you don't need to sit there and struggle on your own, which I think is probably one of the things to take away, is that there are people out there that you can go and ask. You've just got to be happy in your own self that you can be vulnerable, that you can turn around and say, I don't know. I don't know what that's about, but I need to be able to ask that question. Um, and vulnerability is something that, <laughs> in our industry, is something that is probably never really spoken about yeah it's like we're s and c's oh yeah we're all good yeah mentally we're strong because we're strong people and we we can do this when actually figuring out and being able to stand up and say i don't know is actually very strong skill that needs to be learned and worked on and actually you become a far better person from that the ability to say i don't know Yeah, you know how many times have and i've done it in the past i'm not gonna lie Someone says, oh, well, how's this work?" And you go, oh, it does this, this, and this. And then you walk away and go, no, it doesn't. Mm. I've just just answered the question because I felt I needed to answer the question rather than going, "Ah, I'm not sure, actually. I'll I'll, I'll go and ask someone. Why? Well, you don't want to do that because then you look stupid. And then in theory, you think you look worse in the person's eyes. But the reality actually is you look stronger in that person's eyes because you've been honest.
1: Yeah. And And it's
0: just, come.
1: I was just going to say, and also they know when you do give them an answer that it is one you're reasonably confident about. But then um, there's a quote, I think it was pretty sure, ironically, it was at the UKSA conference that I first um, got introduced to you. But um, something like uh, there are no knowns, unknown knowns, unknown unknowns. And it's just, just talking about how confident can you be with what you actually know versus what you think, you know, versus what you think actually, I don't know that
0: absolutely and that's why like my comment is the more i know as i learn the less i know and it's getting more and more you know i get i get taken down like avenues now that i'm sitting there going oh my god i thought it was just as simple as this and now i'm like into this multifactorial effort that i've got no idea where i'm going all i want to do is make a kid be able to stand on one leg and you want all of these things that need to occur well just get the kids to stand on one leg and get them to practice it. I think sometimes we get so het up on, I'm not saying there shouldn't be justification, yeah. but we get so het up in the building of the plan that sometimes we actually forget to do it. We actually forget to get to it and go, well, just try it. Oh, yeah, you, you can't do it. I'll try again. Oh, no, try it. Oh, it's getting closer. It's getting closer. Let's not get too technical in a way sometimes. And you said about how you, you, you pattern out with different patterns to try and get one certain pattern. Well, you know, uh, a guy called Kelvin Giles, um, I've seen a lot with him and I quite make things more complex, yeah? Give the complexity that's needed, yeah? Train something so that the movement you want becomes so simple that the kid doesn't even realise they're doing it. You know, add that. And I think everyone's scared to add too much complexity because they think it might be injuring people. But yeah, add a load of complexity, yeah, you're asking for trouble but get them to be able to move their body in ways that they've never even imagined. And interestingly enough, the kids love it because they're like, Oh, how am I going to get this brimstick round my head, over my feet and back round? Oh, how do I do that? How do I... And those are the sort of skills that encourage kids to really mobilize, going back to what you were saying. Yeah. How do I get my leg round my ear? Okay. Simple stuff, really.
1: Yeah. And it reminds me of a quote I was reading the other day saying about just some motor learning principles and whatnot said it needs to be exciting enough for the brain to sense that the environment's different think oh hang on a minute got to think about this um and ironically going down what you said about kelvin giles is i think it's not this It's not the case that for example i don't know going from goblet squat to front squat to back squat is better than going to from a roll to squat to i don't know a pistol squat or whatever it's just that if we think about the toolbox, alright. Like, here's the toolbox in terms of increasing the load. Here's how we increase range of motion. Here's how we increase, you know, I don't know, complexity. And it's look, different athletes will need different ones of that at different stages, which isn't entirely helpful for people who are like just tell me what to do.
0: Yeah, but but I think people struggling, and I think SNC struggle with that. If I haven't got a matrix to follow, oh my god, what do I do? You know, it's almost like a panic because I feel like you should follow what, going back to what I said earlier about if you're trying to deliver something that's not working,
1: just try stuff,
0: try stuff. I remember, I remember a physio turning around to me who'd done his um, MSC and S&C and he says, yeah, no, I'm, I'm on a journey. Every session for me is me discovering new stuff. And I thought that was really interesting because it was like, well, aren't you trying to help the athlete? He said, yeah, all the time but I see different things occurring in every session. So I'm then discovering new stuff and then I'm going, well, I tried that, but it didn't work. Okay. So I'm now trying something else. Oh, that worked in that situation. So it wasn't that dead right all the time, which I think there's a little bit too much of sometimes that this is what we need to do. Yeah. And this is what we need to do now. Whereas yes, it might be the right movement to do, but once you actually do it on that day, they're having a bad day. So that's not the right movement to do. So you've then got to assess it as a coach and change it.
1: And then it comes back to, like you said, the relationship building. Because if you've not got the relationship there and you're like, oh, that's not working, let's try something different. Oh, that's not working, let's try something different. And the athletes look at you like, hang on a minute, do you not know what you're on about? Because we're doing something different every week.
0: And that's where I think the earlier you are in your career, the more fear you have for that because you think you should hold. And this is really interesting. I, I was thinking about this about three or four weeks ago with an old intern that I used to have. Um, and it was about, they should respect me. And I said, no, you have to earn their respect. Yeah, it was like, but they're talking. I said, well, speak to them about it. Earn their respect by giving them the idea that A, you're knowledgeable, yeah? But also you're interactive and you want to listen. And he was like, oh, okay. And it's weird because you think, just because, and especially with youth, because they're kids, it's about adult kid, there should be respect. And it's interesting, like, I, I've got quite a few friends who are teachers. And actually, when you talk about it, the people that generally try to use that authority to dictate are the people that the kids all hate and actually they don't get on with at all and actually probably play out more in those lessons than the other ones. The teachers who use their relationship normally have the better, usually have the better relationship with the kid. They actually ask the kid, listen to the kid. And I think we can learn a lot from that. And I think the older you are as a coach working with youth, the more you respect that, that if you listen to the child, all of a sudden, and you just, Listen, uh, I suppose the best way you actively listen, you don't just listen because Gareth has told you to listen, you actually listen. And there's a big difference between listening and actively listening. You know, engage the eye contact, yeah? Respond back and tell them back what they've just said so they now know that you're actually delivering and listening. You know, these simple things, but I see so many people, and it's tough, I know, when we've got big groups of kids, yeah? But it's like people... I generally don't shout, never have, never been a shouty coach, yeah? Well, unless I'm competing in the game, and then no one's losing to me. I'm not I'm not going to lose to anyone, yeah? And no matter whether it's a five-year-old or an 18-year-old, who's far better at the game than me, yeah? I'm not losing. But apart from that, um, I hardly ever shout. Interesting enough, the time I do raise my voice, people listen. Because it's not something that is there all the time. And it's not necessarily me shouting. It's me changing my pitch, changing my tone. And this goes back to what we were talking off, screw it off, about what do we want to engage with our coaches? What do we want to get the coaches to learn is that it's about actions. It's about tone. It's about pitch. It's about how the relationship works. It's not always about, oh, you've done eight reps. You need to do 10. Oh, I'm dead. Do 10 no come on like we're better than that we're better than that and that's what it's about so i think yeah, i think it's it it, it is interesting uh how, how it actually ends up uh, i think has to be a mixture between knowledge and experience yeah
1: i think that's uh, i think that's a nice way to head into my final outro of questions um if you feel like there's one key take home that stands out for you, other than I suppose what you just said there, then uh, what would you like that take home to be for the listeners? I,
0: it's tough. Cause I think that, that last one is probably pretty much it. Uh, for me, it's called coaching for a reason. Otherwise we'd be called programmers. We'd be called data analysts. It's coaching and coaching involves relationships. Dealing with people one-on-one in groups, dealing with other people regarding other people. Yeah. Um, And I think the ability to develop emotional intelligence is a biggie. It's interesting. I've had a few interns that have come from retail and their ability to deal with problems is far better than any of the kids that have come out of uni, even though the guys that have come out of uni got loads of knowledge and even some coaching skills, but the person, a couple of people have come out of retail oh, my God, can they deal with problems? Can they deal with conversations with parents that aren't? so? Because they've learned to deal with that from a, a social and emotional side, not just a, this is my cookie-cutter program type idea. So uh, for me, the biggest thing I take away is go out and coach some people. Now, if you have to do that for free, your mates, dads, like under sevens, footy team, go do it, Yeah. Don't worry about whether you've got paid for it because you'll love it. Honestly, trust me, it's pumped. Yeah, you'll love doing it. Fair dues. Once you start to get some experience, then obviously you will want to look for people to pay. However, what I've always found is that if you start something generally in good faith for free with somebody and then you go, right, that's my time period I've done. The amount of time people have come back to me and said, could you come back and do some more? And you go well, I can't really because obviously, like I'm, you know, I'm looking to move on and do it. Oh, we'll pay you for it, and you go, oh, okay, cool. And all of a sudden, you become available. <laughs> but, um, but you know what I mean. It's, I, I think if you're doing stuff in good faith, human beings normally will repay that at some point. Obviously, what I would say to people is don't have the Mickey taken out of you. Don't, you know, always set a timeline of like an internship. It's six months, nine months a year. I want to get this out of it, and then. Get that fairness from it, or I'm going to work with um, uh, my mates' under sevens football team up until Christmas just to give them a bit of a hand. If it then leads to something, leads to something. But you haven't then been committing to something totally free for all time.
1: Yeah, I think like you said, it comes back to the expectations and having those clear boundaries. Um, when I spoke to friends of mine who aren't involved in strength and conditioning. And for example, it says stuff like, oh, so how much are you getting paid? Like, uh, nothing. And they're like, oh, but it's going to lead to a job. And you're like, uh, no. And then you're like, but there's some other stuff which is going on, which I'm, I like to think I'm fully aware of and where this is leading to and where it fits in the bigger picture. I was like, this isn't, you know, a forever unpaid internship, but it's like you said with um, your internship and how full on it is, but you get so much from it. It's like this time, 12 months from now, you're going to be in a really good position, versus you know, let's pay for something, but actually somebody's only doing it because they're getting paid by you for it or whatever.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting because there's been lots to talk about whether the internship should be monetized, and we've chatted internally as a group about it. And uh, you know, probably what we're offering is probably worth, you know. If you're asking a university and they're saying, well, it's going to cost you nine grand a year and you're not actually delivering, you know, we're delivering the workshops in the same way every day, uh, every every week and the practical stuff and the online experience and we're charging it out of nothing. The only thing we're getting is that we say that it's almost like a, a seesaw, if that makes sense. Hmm. So when you first start as an intern, yeah, a bit more shadowing, getting involved, you're, you're learning loads more from us. As you get through the internship, then you start to maybe assist. Then you start to lead with us watching. Then once you get to the stage of leading without us watching, you start getting paid. So it it becomes this seesaw that you're really getting loads off us in the first 50% of the session of the internship. And then as you come towards, we're trying to get you to the idea that you're working on your own, that you're trying to learn more. Now, I'm not going to lie, this year has been incredibly difficult for our interns because there's been no practical. So we've had to do everything online, which they probably lost out compared to other interns. But I also see uh, a huge amount of pride in seeing a lot of the kids, I say kids, God, I sound so old. A lot of the people on the internships of where they've gone, what they've done. Um, And they've all followed their own path, their own route. And people have gone and all do, but they all generally come out of the internship going, I followed this path because I've made decisions because of the internship. And I think that's really important.
1: Yeah, and ironically, what you just said there is something that actually really annoys me about um, social media and is so easy for us since an unpaid internship. But like I look at like the first internship I ever done and I said to you off um, off air, my degree I did because I wanted to train athletes and I was in no better position to train them by the end of it. Now my master's, different story, fantastic. But when I did an internship, which I did before my master's, I think back to, I think what use would I have been like to someone like yourself fresh out of uni like useless like what was my even if my time was worth something what would i have given besides you know whereas now yeah different story like but what value would it's I really have interesting,
0: it? it's, yeah it's really interesting like about monetizing internships and should they be paid should they be charged because there's almost you're almost at the two ends of the spectrum and it's like if I'm a private business and I have to charge out yeah. so there's a rental fee, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a certain amount that a person would have to get in to get paid. Yeah. And generally they look anywhere between like 50 and 55% to make the markups. Right. So if I want to pay a intern, for example, uh, the minimum wage, which is what they all talk about. You should be or the living wage at 10 quid or whatever it is. That means they have to bring in a bare minimum of 20 to 25 quid for that time spent, just like anyone else who'd be paid. And I sit there and go, if I can, if you can deliver that for me, which generally means you're running a session on your own, we'll pay you because we think that you're good enough to do it. But I think everyone going in internships, sure you'll be paid. That's lovely if you're a governing body and you've got a, a spare cash or you're an academy that's got a lot of spare cash. Yeah. But, I suppose bringing that back a bit, I'm I'm trying to sort of jump in about a bit, but also you made a really good point about what could you offer me? Well, to start with, it's not about what you offer me. It's what I offer you. As you develop, it then becomes what you offer me. Now, interestingly enough, would doing an internship later on in a career where you can offer something be more beneficial to both parties Now, there's an interesting format. How many people would go and do an internship where, yeah, they might be not getting paid their big salary that they normally get paid, but they're getting paid some money to go and deliver something that, A, they can help with, but B, still benefit from. So this then comes into the idea of not interning, but more mentoring. And I think that's something that we probably all don't do enough of. We don't take ourselves out of our zone enough times and stick ourselves in another zone and ask someone else to help us.
1: It's interesting because I think what you've said there, like I've done a few internships um, and I would argue with the IS, hundred percent I was mentored and I learned absolutely shed loads. And from working well, intern at Durham university, there was five different full-time SSE coaches, four interns. Like I was mentored, I was interning. There was parts of the program where they said, look, you're going to take more responsibility of this, but I can't quite let you have responsibility over this. And that's how you develop. But I think also an issue is we compare too much with other industries Where it's like, for example, if you're interning in, I don't know, the world of finance, you probably are doing some actual work. Whereas, for example, if I don't know, if I'm with you for Move for Sport and I'm just observing one of your sessions to try and learn, you know, yes, that's beneficial for my development, but how have I added value to your?
0: Yeah, but but you're adding, and that's where the seesaw for me is really important because I have to work on the basis that for the first, 50% 50% time you're not adding value to me what I'm doing is adding value to you which uh, if we start getting into the old altruistic version I'm still getting value I'm still feeling that I'm giving back or yeah. my other employees and staff are still giving back and weirdly um on a, a very selfish point I remember having this exact conversation when we first started into. I started internships because I was getting bored and comfortable I've been doing what I've been doing for 10 years same thing same day all of a sudden I brought some interns in who actually started asking me questions. And some of those questions I didn't know the answer to. So I had to go and find out. So weirdly, the internship makes you learn more as well and keeps you up to date because most of the people coming out have got far more research reading than I have. And they go, what about this? And I go, uh, don't know. You tell me about it. Which is really interesting. So the idea of us not getting anything in the first 50%, I disagree with. But as you said, we're very much if we get to a stage where you are leading on your own yeah and you are good you get paid you get paid because otherwise it's not fair otherwise it's people taking advantage of free labor which is totally wrong
1: yeah and that's a nice way to nice way to wrap that um question up uh if you have one recommended resource maybe it's an app a podcast a book that you've read
0: I've got a few. Interesting enough, all the hoo-ha that I've just been banging on about, about research, yeah, I do actually, you know, I've got my CSCS, so I actually, um, sorry, my C, uh, Yeah, my CSCS, so I actually use, and I'm a member of the NSCA, so I actually use those journals quite a bit as well. So I actually do do reading. So I, I don't mind the Strength and Conditioning journal. Um, I prefer that to the research because it gives a bit more practical um, However what I found recently is it's less about reading about um in books about how to change things programming exercise wise you get that from networking if I'm being honest yeah go speak to people who have done stuff with certain movements yeah that's where you get benefit because you can ask them like you said you get to the nub of it really quickly rather than having to read through it and not really seeing it i've actually seen a lot more benefit re- recently and we've talked about it a little bit um in having a look at how you can look at how your life's going. So things like Simon Senex stuff, yeah, we've talked about, and, and Atomic Habits and stuff like this. It's been really interesting. Now, I'm not saying you need to go and read every self-help book in the world, yeah, but actually choosing some really good content actually changed, you know, Simon Sinek's, um Sinek's uh, Infinite Game was eye-opening about where things go, um, about the game is infinite, yeah. Because if it's not infinite, you always have an end to it. So if you keep creating goals that have endings, well, what happens when it's done? You're done. There's nowhere to go. So it's about, it goes through your life and it's about the process that you have to enjoy. And I've I've spoken to many, many players and said, you have to enjoy the day-to-day. You have to thrive in the day-to-day. Forget that there's something at the end of it. Love the day-to-day. And that's not just the day-to-day grind. That's just the general enjoy what you do. And that's really important. And that if you've got the right structures, that day-to-day in going back to the atomic habits, which is the other one I just mentioned, is if you do the small things every day, then the big things sort themselves out. You know, the old adage of, you know, look after the pennies and the pennies are sort after the pounds. Yeah. Sounds a bit cheesy, but actually you can take that into everything. And Hey, I think the big thing to take away is we're all human. So we could all set up these lovely little lists of everything I've got to do every day, but let's be honest, you're going to get a day or two where you go, do you know what? I can't be asked. And what we've got to be really honest about that is that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have a bad day. It's not a bad thing. Everyone has them. What we've got to do is go, cool. That was a bad day or a bad week. Okay. What do I do now? How do I reset? And it's about identifying that it's happening and then figuring out how long it takes to reset. Now, some people can reset like that. could be just as simple as a, oh yeah, I've just lost my range of thought, crack on. For others, it's like, oh, I need, the day's gone. If that's how it is, it is. But understand it, identify it, and then reset.
1: Yeah, and it's ironic, just listening to you talk, that reminds me of a conversation I had in the week um, with a chap, and I said about goal setting. I said, every year I set myself goals, and without sounding arrogant, every year I achieve them. But I don't have this... One thing I'm not very good at is sort of little checkpoints along the way of being like, oh, well, I said I would achieve this in 12 months where I'm at. Um, And maybe it's because I'm biased towards the goals that I'm setting with, I don't know, lifting, putting content out there because it's stuff that I inherently enjoy doing. Um, But, yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, it happens by default rather than design. Um, But, yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah,
0: We, we all have a bias for what we enjoy doing. We all have a bias for how we want to coach. We all have a bias for how our athlete wants to do. Weirdly, we've got to leave that at the door a lot of the time in everything. And it's tough.
1: Yeah, that's uh, something I'm working on is to set goals for stuff that wouldn't necessarily get done if uh, there's not things in place. But that's a topic for a different day. Um and Absolutely. And finally, one of my favourite questions to finish things off. Um, if you could spend a period of time observing a coach with their athletes or maybe a coach with their youth athletes, kids, whatever, um, who would you want to observe and why?
0: That's really interesting. I've, I've, I've got a few, but, like, I'd love to be able to see, you know, I remember Mike Boyle being the first book I ever picked up as an S&C coach on his functional training systems and stuff like that. And for me, what I like is that he goes with what he feels, Yeah. He's not someone that's gone with the big, he's trained. I'd I'd love to see how he takes the session, how he integrates. Yeah. Um, The other one I'd quite like to see for youth would be Avery Fagenbaum because I know that what he's going to do is going to be an absolute blast. Yeah. He's going to get his balloons out. Everyone's going to have a load of fun, but he's going to show how it works. And there's going to be some sort of education process within that. And I think that's really important for me. And I love to see those guys do that. There's no doubt about that um and, and it's tough because i suppose those two guys are, are pretty big names but it's always interesting to see how they when i've watched other coaches what i've always liked about watching sports coaches is the great ones keep it simple don't say very much but when they say it people listen
1: yeah and it's again one of my just going back to your book recommendations one of my favorite Books that I've read massively impactful is just called The One Thing. And I was always thinking as a coach, what's the one thing I can say? There's loads of things that are potentially going quote unquote wrong, but what's the one thing I can do that's going to have a knock-on or domino effect onto all of this lot? And it's so hard as an intern coach, you want to be like, I don't know, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And it's like, well, there's no way the athlete's focusing on that. So what's one change that is potentially going to knock onto all of those things?
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're totally right. I think the big thing for me is I, I I look at that and go, if it was one thing, what's the positive thing that I can say first? If I can, if, if if there's one thing I have to correct, is there a second thing that goes before that that creates the positive image in their mind of what they've done? So all of a sudden everything fires up, going Yay, I'm, I'm positive! And then when you do want to change something, they're already engaged rather than it's negative, it's wrong.
1: Yeah. And equally to follow that, giving them something that's actually actionable because it's so easy. I find it, I do it myself when I play sports I'm not very good at. I'm like, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. And you're like, right, well, tell me or I need to tell myself what to do rather than don't play that shot or whatever. Totally, totally. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you very much for your time, Gareth. Thank you for listening to episode 48 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself as always, Todd Davidson and today's guest, Gareth Shelbourne. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a coach, teacher or athlete that you believe would benefit from listening. And if you want to go one better than that, then you can check out my Patreon via www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. In exchange for subscribing and supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive access to all of my educational strength conditioning content. All 30 of my calisthenics kids lessons designed to improve strength confidence and movement skill in children using bodyweight only training and age-appropriate coaching. You'll also have access to my ever-expanding movement library as well as all the programs that I've released via this platform. Thank you very much for listening and I'll catch you again in the next episode.